Welcome to the All About Setwork podcast. In this podcast, we talk about all things setwork. I include training tips, a behind-the-scenes look at what your instructor or trial official may be going through, and much more. In this episode, I wanted to talk about the importance of understanding dog body behavior when we are doing setwork. <laughs> so before we start diving into the podcast episode itself, let me do a very quick introduction on myself. My name is Diana Santos. I'm the owner and lead instructor for Setwork University, Dog Sport University, and Pet Dog U. These are online dog training platforms they're designed to provide high quality dog training instruction to as many people as possible. And we're very fortunate to have a client basis worldwide. For Setwork University in particular, we provide online courses, seminars, webinars, and eBooks that are all designed to help you achieve your Setwork training goals. So whether you are just getting started in Setwork, you're looking to build some more advanced skills, or if you're interested in trialing, we have a training solution for you. But now that you know a little bit more about me, let's dive into the podcast episode itself. So in this episode, I wanted to talk about the importance of really understanding dog body behavior when we are doing some work. And people may be saying, why does that matter? <laughs> I just need my dog to go and find the hides. Why do I need to know this other stuff? The reason being is that scent work is asking our dogs to participate in hunting. And we are trying to build value in certain things for them to go hunt for. Our birch hides, our anise hides, our clove hides, and so on. Because of that there is a possibility that your dog will be working in a space, and if someone else were to try to come up and take that hide, your dog may take exception to that. <laughs> and for good reasons, right? You just spend all this time in training, developing your dog's love for the thing that they're hunting for, and now they perceive someone else is trying to come up and steal it. Your dog's exception to that may be anything from freezing, to growling, to air snapping, to trying to bite that person. But there's another part of this as well, is that scent work as an activity is open to reactive dogs. And reactive dogs is a very large category of dogs. It can be dogs from any part of the spectrum. It could be dogs who are sensitive and they are fearful to dogs that are more towards the, I want to, you know, use my teeth more often than not. When we are doing scent work in a training context, so let's say that you are an instructor and you're teaching scent work, it is crucially important that you understand what you're seeing from a dog body behavior standpoint. This is going to help you keep everyone safe, including yourself. <laughs> and this has to be part of your curriculum. You have to have this as part of your knowledge base. You have to be able to read dogs. I would argue you have to be able to read dogs to do any kind of dog training, but it's extraordinarily important in scent work. Because if you are in the middle of trying to help a team do a search and you encroach upon a dog who is working and they're telling you with their body in no uncertain terms, stay away from my hide and you don't listen to that, they may tag you, which would be bad. <laughs> we don't like it when dogs tag or bite people. Those are all bad things. But this also applies to trialing. That if you are a trial official, for instance... You have to be mindful of what your movements or actions within a search area may do. Now, again, this is not to try to excuse people from entering dogs into trials that want to bite people. That should not be happening. Full stop. That is not, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say, well, you know, it's a big wild west and people can just bring in aggressive dogs to trials and it'll be great. Absolutely not. <laughs> If your dog is aggressive, particularly towards people, they should not be trialing at all. However, there are definitely things that as trial officials, 
you could do that could prompt even a non-aggressive stable dog to feel threatened or to feel as though they're being put into conflict where they may feel that they need to make you back off or worse. The other part of being a trial official is you are also basically not in control of the search area, but you are the eyes and ears of the search area. There are a lot of people who may be involved in that search from your timer to your gate steward, to your scorekeeper, the person who may be taking video, any of your volunteers that may be coming or going. If you're doing a container search, you may have a cold box volunteer. You may have a hot box volunteer. That's a lot of people within or immediately around the space. You're the eyes and ears for basically all of those people when you are watching a team work. And you should have the understanding and knowledge of what a dog is saying as they are working that space. So if you need to let everyone else know, hey, make sure that you're all averting your eyes for this dog because they're keying in on everyone and we need to get this dog out of here. You need to be able to recognize that and see that and say it. (laughs) But you can't do that if you don't know what you're looking at. This is my plea for everyone in the community, from dog owners to instructors to trial officials to everyone in between. We have got to put in the time to educate ourselves as far as what dog body behavior is all about and understanding that our activity of set work, this is extraordinarily important because we are asking dogs to hunt. And if you are not careful with how you conduct yourself within a given search area, you may actually prompt a dog to do something that they otherwise wouldn't. Putting them into conflict and so on and so forth. You then add in the extra layer that you're also, as an activity, inviting in dogs within the reactive category. Yes. (laughs) Even more reason why we have to have this really good understanding of what dogs are saying when they are doing certain things. And it's not just when things are potentially problematic, where there may be a bite. Obviously, you should absolutely understand what that is but also when a dog just may be stressed, when a dog may be worried, when a dog may be tired. I mean, again, as an instructor or a trial official, if you think a dog is you know, getting to the point of being exhausted or if they're getting you know, close to you know, overheating or something, you gotta be able to recognize that. <laughs> and you gotta be able to step in and be like, hey, you know, we need to do something to help this dog. But people may still say, I just don't understand why this is important. I just want to do set work. I just want to teach set work. I just want to officiate set work. This is not important. And I would argue with you that that is entirely not true. In my opinion, every single person has a responsibility regardless of the hat that they wear in set work. Whether you're an owner, whether you're a handler, whether you are an instructor or a trainer or a trial official, or whether that's setting hides or a judge or both, We all have this responsibility within the community to understand what the activity truly is, again, hunting, to understand that we are dealing with a predator, a separate species. We have to better understand that species and what that species says and what our actions or inactions may be perceived by that species as meaning. (laughs) So let's just take an example. Let's say that you're officiating a separate trial. You're a judge. You're officiating a class, and when you're doing so, typically speaking, 
Judges are very stoic looking. They have square shoulders. They have their mouth closed. They're standing very straight. And they are staring at the team because they're trying to take in all the information that's going on so they can probably score the run. However, in dog language, (laughs) you standing like that is extraordinarily confrontational, particularly if you're head on to them. You're not moving. You're staring. Everything is saying, come at me, bro. (laughs) And if you have a sensitive dog or a reactive dog who also has stranger danger, that could be a problem. If you were in the middle of officiating a search and you happen to notice that a dog was kind of sort of working, but was still kind of checking out the environment and they happened to pick up on you and now they're keyed in on you, meaning that they're staring at you. I would sincerely hope that that would be a cue to you to break the eye contact number one (laughs) and change your body language to communicate to the dog that you are not a threat. I would also hope that you would be maintaining your distance from this dog. And dependent on what the dog did next, you would be communicating to everyone else who is in the search area to keep their distance from this dog. And if it got to the point where now the dog pivots and they make sure that they are completely in alignment from the tip of their nose, from the tip of their tail to you, eyes are locked onto you, mouth is closed, tail is tall and taut, then I would say that that team should probably be excused. (laughs) And that you should say something to the owner and the trial chairperson, and they may actually just be asked to leave the trial grounds. Because that dog in that moment is saying in no uncertain terms, I'm going to bite you. You take one step towards me and I'm going to tag you. I may even come to you and tag you if you don't get out of my face. I mean, these are the things that we have to recognize. And does it mean that every single dog who's doing set work is this, you know, ticking time bomb? Of course not. (laughs) That's not true. But we have to recognize these things and take these responsibilities so that we also aren't putting dogs into situations who otherwise wouldn't be doing anything unless we did something on our end to prompt them to do so. Again, I want to stress this point. I am not trying to excuse dogs who should not be in these situations to begin with. I'm also not trying to make excuses for dogs choosing to use their teeth in a situation where it's not warranted. That's not what I'm saying. But it is absolutely true that you can push a dog to do things with their teeth they otherwise wouldn't if given the choice. So here we'll give you another example. As an instructor, let's say that you're teaching, and let's say it's an introductory kind of thing where it doesn't matter the search element. Typically people do like musical boxes or stuff like that, or something similar where they're trying to get the dog used to searching within the space, right? Dog comes up, they find their hide, they're rewarded, great. Person grabs the hide and they bring it somewhere else. That whole dynamic can be extraordinarily problematic, (laughs) particularly if you're not careful with how you do it. Now, this also requires that instructors are doing some kind of intake process with dogs that are coming in for their classes. You should know who the dogs are before they come to class, ideally. That's not always possible. Sometimes there are drop-ins, yada, yada, yada. But when they're coming into the room at the very beginning of class to go to their little staging areas, you should be watching everyone. (laughs) You should have a pretty good idea 
of the kind of dogs that you're dealing with during that time as well. And you should be able to see any red flags that you then have to take care of. But going back to our musical hide situation, if you still wanted to do this, again, it's a very common way of training. I would sincerely hope that you would make 100 million percent certain that that dog is nowhere near that hide when you moved in to move that hide. That they have already moved on on their own, and now you're going to do musical hides. Otherwise, (laughs) dog is at hide, hand of instructor comes in to move hide, dog's mouth is now on instructor's hand. This is just very common stuff. This is understanding that you have just, in the process of training, built value in this hide, whatever it is, food, toy, birch and club, doesn't matter. And now you're reaching in to quite literally take it away from the dog. The dog is going to have a problem with that. <laughs> it doesn't matter who the dog is. doesn't matter what their ranking is as far as reactivity, resource guarding or anything else. But if they also happen to be a resource guarder, they're not just going to tell you off a little bit. They're going to really let you know. And you're probably not going to have, you know, a hand that does not have some teeth marks on it, which we want to avoid. Again, understanding these things, you got to know it before you start doing this stuff. Then you have just the way that you may be running your class, how it may be set up, how dogs are coming and going, how everything is situated. Can dogs see other dogs working? Because that adds a whole other layer of added stress to the environment. If half a dog is working, they can see all the other dogs glaring at them going, that's my cookie (laughs) or cookie opportunity. And now you come in to move the hide. I mean, it's just as a nightmare. It is a, it's a disaster waiting to happen. And you may get lucky, truly, a couple of times. Eventually it's going to come back to, pardon the pun, bite you (laughs) one way or another. And it's no laughing matter. I'm trying not to get too worked up about this, but truly understand that if you're an instructor or a trial official, these responsibilities are very serious because of something that you did that in any other context, if you understood dog body behavior, the way that you can do things that could be encouraging a dog to make a mistake, dependent on the state that you're doing that in within the United States, there are places that have no strike laws, which means that if a dog bites you, they're done. They're euthanized. They're quarantined to make sure they don't have rabies, and then they are euthanized. And that's it. <laughs> it's terrible. It's absolutely awful. It's heart-wrenching. In other places, the dog is going to be put into quarantine, which again is no fun at all. It's terrible. Then they're going to be on house arrest. They may have to be muzzled when they're taken out in public. They're probably going to be banned from whatever organization you were fishing for. This is a big deal. Like this is not something. That's just like, oh, whatever. It's like, no, (laughs) we have a responsibility. But again, I want to stress this point. Owners also have a responsibility to know their dogs and to make sure they're putting their dogs in situations where the dog can actually be successful. Not making excuses for the dog. The dog has bitten five different people on five different occasions. I would sincerely hope that you were if not already, working with a professional who can actually help you assess, can this dog be helped? Or do we need to go make a behavioral euthanasia appointment with the veterinarian? Because this dog is just basically, there's no helping them. 
And that's a possibility. It's not fun to talk about. I get it. But these things are realities. So again, I, I know no one wants to think about these things. I know no one wants to talk about them. I just want to go find highs and have fun. That's great. <laughs> I want you to too. I want as many people involved in this activity as possible. And I know there's also lots of people who are interested in teaching set work. That they may be doing other types of dog training and now they want to offer this for their clients as well. Or there may be people who are interested in officiating because now there are even more trialing opportunities. There's more organizations. All of this is good. More people playing the game is good. More dogs having the opportunity to sniff, good. More dogs who may have behavioral issues, who may have limitations otherwise, participating in the activity, good. Do all of those dogs need to be going to trials or even in-person group classes? The answer is no. <laughs> and these are the things that we have to recognize, is that from the owner's standpoint, but also for instructors and in having these conversations, and even trial officials, is that when we identify those dogs, we have to have that really hard conversation. I don't think this is the best fit for your dog. I think we're prompting them by having them here to make a drastic mistake. First of all, them biting either a person or another dog is really bad. It's not a small thing. It's a big deal. And we don't want your dog to do that, right? We can do other alternatives, whether it be private lessons, whether it be doing something virtual, such as my sister company, Cyber Setwork, or any other of the other virtual setwork opportunities that are out there where you get to figure out safe ways that your dog can still play and earn ribbons, but they don't have to be at a bustling trial. There are alternatives now. That's why I created Cyber Setwork, was so that there were, would be these kinds of alternatives to help these dogs still play the game without putting them in situations where they're going to be making these really horrible mistakes. So that is definitely something that needs to happen. We need to have these honest discussions. Us as owners have to be honest about who our dogs are. What is the best interest for them? We have to stop making excuses as a community as a whole for biting. It's just, no, there's no need for a stable dog to use their teeth unless they were really prompted to do so. And that's the other part of this coin is that instructors and trial officials have to have the wherewithal and the knowledge to ensure that we are not prompting dogs to make these mistakes. When you are doing a class, if you are teaching, what are you doing to ensure this dog can do the exercise and not be worried about you? <laughs> How did you design everything? How is everything set up? Is a dog coming into the space already at a level 10 and they're about to completely lose it just simply because of the way the things are designed? Are you asking a dog to decide between the thing that you just trained them to find value in that you're now going to steal away from them and telling you, no, I don't want you to do that. <laughs> These things are important. You also have to be recognizing when a dog is frightened, when they are scared, when they are worried, when they're concerned, when they're stressed out, when they are exhausted, when they are overheating, when they may not be feeling well when they may be having some kind of moment where they need help. You have got to be able to recognize that as an instructor because your client may not. Do I want you to be able to impart that knowledge onto them so that they do? Of course I do, but you can only do that if you know it. <laughs> so again, I know that there are lots of people, colleagues, who are interested in getting involved in set work as far as teaching it, which I think is wonderful. And they hear me talk about all the responsibilities that instructors have. And, oh, you want me to learn about odor theory and all. It's going to take me years to do this. And I would argue, yes. <laughs> and that shouldn't be seen as a bad thing. 
But if you had to take away everything else, I would sincerely hope that you would agree with me that being able to properly read dogs so that you can set them up to succeed and so they aren't making these terrible, horrible mistakes is really important. It also helps keep you safe. So as a way of putting this in perspective, I've been training professionally since 2011. The very first part of my career for many, for the first part of my career for several years was focusing on helping dogs who were reactive, fearful, and aggressive. In the entirety of my career, I've never been bitten. (laughs) Not once. And I dealt with some pretty scary dogs. I am not covered from head to toe in scars or bite marks. Again, I've never been bitten. If you have been bitten before and multiple times as an instructor or a trainer, to me, that's a problem. And again, there may be people who disagree with me on this, but I don't think that there's any situation where a dog should be biting you. You should have seen the signs ahead of time and taken the steps to ensure that you weren't going to get bit. <laughs> now, if you get in the middle of a dog fight or whatever else, you know what, all bets are off. But I'm talking one-on-one. You're working with a dog, you're working with a client, whatever. That dog tags you. What were you doing? You should have seen it coming. And again, I hear people say, oh, it happened so fast. That dog probably gave you so many warning signs Even if they had been punished for growling and everything else in the meantime, they were probably eyeing you the moment they came in the room. Like, this is what I mean, is that even if, even if the deck was stacked against you, where, you know, who knows what happened, whatever situations, whatever details, it doesn't matter. If you know dog body behavior, you can identify those issues and prevent them from happening anyway. You can keep yourself safe. You can keep your client safe. You can ensure that this dog is not going to be making a drastic mistake. So let me give you an example to try to help this make a little bit more sense. And then we'll wrap this episode up. (laughs) Not in set work, but barn hunt. I offered drop-in classes and I had a couple bring their dog who again was drop-in. So they just showed up one day and I will give these people a huge amount of credit. They came up ahead of time and they said, Our dog is not very good with people. And we wanted to see if we may be able to do this. And I said, sure, I really appreciate you saying that. This again is a drop-in class. So there's a lot of dogs. There's a lot of people. Everyone gets in the ring one at a time. This dog, I'm like, well, why don't you just have your dog potty over there? And as they're doing it, I'm watching the dog. And I can see that this dog is very serious. (laughs) So I tell everybody else, when this dog is going to come into this ring, everyone else is going to go back to their cars with their dogs. And you're all going to breathe. And I'm going to be working with them in the ring. And when they come out, they're going to jog over to their, their car and they're going to have a nice big party and they're going to get the dog right back into their crate. Everyone did what they were, as they were supposed to. I had to stay outside of the ring. And that was to keep me safe and also to not prompt this dog to make a drastic mistake that could end his life. If he tags me, he's going to get put down. It's that simple. Because he already had a bite history. Fast forward. And I'm now working with these people one-on-one. I've been working inside their house and they're still coming to the drop-ins. We're still communicating with everyone who's there. Whenever he's running, everyone goes back to their car. They're not doing direct eye contact. They're standing sideways. They're breathing. They're doing all this stuff. He did great. It got to the point where I could be in the ring with him and he was fine. Again, a lot of work one-on-one in his house as well. And very committed owners who were trying their best for this dog. And my heart broke for them because 
they wanted so desperately for him to be quote unquote normal. And it was never going to happen. (laughs) And we had lots of very blunt discussions about it. And they would fluctuate the way that people do between accepting the very limited small bubble of life that he had and wanting to just simply take a walk and understanding that you can't control those variables. It's just too dangerous. You can't do it. Why am I bringing any of this up? It's to point out that during that whole time that I was working with him, which was several months, that he was coming to a drop-in class where there were other people and other dogs. There were no incidents. There was no problems because I was blunt with everyone. This dog is serious. We don't want anyone to get bit. You're going to stay where you're at. You're going to breathe and not do eye contact and everything else. I was very, very direct with the owners. They understood what the situation was. Nothing was sugar-coated. And I kept myself safe as well. I did not push this dog to the point where he was going to have to make a decision that involved his teeth. He's hunting for a rat inside of a tube. Like It's even more prey drive than we have in, in Sark. <laughs> But all of this was under the umbrella of safety. Understanding at any point, if something went left, we would abort the whole thing and he would go home and that would be it. He wouldn't do barn hunt anymore. This is what I mean, is that you have to be able to understand what the dogs are saying, what they need, and how you can meet those needs. And that very well could be and mean that you have to make an adjustment such as referring out to someone else who may be better suited to help, and keeping in mind the safety of everyone, yourself, your other clients, human and canine, any class assistants, but also of the dog themselves and their owners. There is a very real thing about redirected aggression. (laughs) The dog may not be secure enough to go after you, but then they'll go after their person instead because of something that you did. Like All of this stuff matters. I know no one wants to hear about it. I know no one wants to think about it. We just want to have fun with our dogs. But please, we as a community have to recognize that we're working with this other species that has very, very sharp teeth. Every single dog on the planet can bite. That's not going to change. We all, again, from owners to handlers to trainers, instructors and trial officials and everyone in between, we have got to understand what our dogs are saying, what dog body behavior means, what our influence onto our dogs mean, what our body behavior communicates to our dogs in any given situation, how we could potentially de-escalate a situation if necessary, and how to recognize when something is just red flags and red siren and sirens going off. This is a huge problem. We need to stop this (laughs) before something really bad happens. That knowledge should be a requirement for everyone. So what are some solutions? How can we deal with all this stuff? Now that you made us all uncomfortable, Santos lady. (laughs) We are going to be putting together a webinar series through Network University that's going to be focusing on dog owners, on instructors, and on trial officials in order to better make sense of this whole thing, of being able to better read your dog within the context of set work and the types of different situations and the different types of decisions that you can make in those certain situations. So I'm hoping that's going to help. We're also going to be finalizing in the next couple of months, our teaching setwork seminar. Within there, we're also going to be having modules specifically designed to how you can safely design your classes or your one-on-one training situations 
So you are keeping everyone safe. You're promoting the dog to do the learning that you want them to do. And you're not inadvertently causing the dog to make mistakes with something that you're doing. I'm probably also going to be doing something more specifically for trial officials as well. And all of this should also bleed over to everyone else who's involved, (laughs) whether it be classes, whether that be trials, that includes your volunteers, that includes your class assistants, so on and so forth. But basically, we all need to take the time, just like we need to be better handlers, right? We need to improve our ability to read our dog as far as working odor, or we need to improve our leash handling skills, or we need to improve our mental management so we're able to deal with trial stress. Just like we need to build all the skills for the dog, being able to work different odor puzzles or being able to search in different locations and so on and so forth. Being able to properly read dog body behavior, to understand escalation, to understand thresholds, to understand how you can positively or negatively affect a situation, to have these kinds of really truthful conversations about all these types of stuff, and also, quite frankly, to change the dynamic within the dog owning community that somehow a dog with a five to 10 bite history is a-okay. We need to change that conversation to know that's not normal (laughs) and that's not okay. And, you know, resource guarding is not a small thing. And it's just, we are on a bad trajectory right now. And I know this because I'm currently in the market for a dog and it's, it's scary. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not easy trying to do this at all. And I know what I'm doing. So we all need to do better is basically what it boils down to. So we're going to do our part here at Setwork University to keep talking about this, to offer some solutions and some ways for people that can learn to redirect you to other resources for other experts who are very, very good about this. This is all that they do. And trying to really elevate everyone's abilities to do this safely, to keep dogs safe, to ensure that our dogs are able to play this game in a way that is in their best interest, whether or not that's playing the game at home, whether or not that's playing a game with a trusted friend or a trusted instructor or going to trials and traveling the country or wherever. All of that, there are no right or wrong answers as long as... (laughs) It's good for the dog, right? I have so much respect for people who recognize what their dog needs and go and do whatever that is. It doesn't matter what it is. Is it in the best interest of the dog? Then you have my full support. It kills me when people try to do things with their dogs that's just not appropriate for the dog. And we as a community need to help promote better choices. And we The big part of that is all of us having a more objective view of what we understand, what our skills are, how we are perceiving all these things, what we find to be acceptable and okay. Dogs biting people left, right, and center is not okay. (laughs) People not recognizing what scent work is eliciting as far as hunt drive and thus putting themselves in situations that are almost tempting the dog to bite them, also not okay. (laughs) So there's a lot of improvement that could be done across the board, and we're going to try to do what we can to help with that. But as always, I'd love to hear from all of you. <laughs> I Again, I know this stuff gets people very uncomfortable. I know some people may take this the wrong way. You're trying to call my dog out. You're saying my dog is bad. You're trying to call me out or whatever. 
please try to take any of this personally. I hope you take a deep breath and just think about these things objectively. At the core of it, we just want to promote everyone to be safe, for our dogs to play this game and love this game, because this game is fantastic for all dogs. But responsibility comes along with it, and we can't just keep ignoring it. Everyone has this responsibility, and it'll just make everything better if we're all just better able to understand what our dogs are saying. So even outside of the realm of biting dogs and aggression and everything else, if your dog was just really tired, right? Let's say that you had done a whole bunch of training, you did a bunch of trials, like a couple weekends in a row, your dog just made you be spent. And if you can recognize that and say, you know what, we need to take a break. That could so help your relationship with your dog. <laughs> so that's, that's the kind of thing I'm hoping that everyone can take away from this. But again, I promise I'm wrapping up now. <laughs> we do want to hear from you. So we're going to be posting this episode up on our Facebook page for Setwick University. If you have any questions or comments, you're always more than welcome to post those there. As always, we also want to hear from you as far as any other topics that you may be interested in us covering in our podcast. We have a couple that are in the pipeline that are waiting to either be finalized and edited or that we are scheduling more talks with more speakers. We do have some other interesting topics that people have requested and we're trying to line up speakers to get all that done. We are also going to be continuing our spotlight series. So if you do have anyone that is giving back to the separate community, either as an individual or a business, please let me know. We want to make sure that we're shining as much light onto those that are helping us in the separate community as we can. Again, it's good to talk about good, happy things. <laughs> in addition to these things that, again, may elicit some, oh, I don't want to think about this stuff, but it is important. And we are also going to be very, very busy over at Setwork University. We have lots of new webinars coming out, new courses and seminars. It's a ton. <laughs> So definitely check out setworku.com in order to see all those things. But as always, I want to thank you all for listening. We are over 44,000 downloads. It's absolutely insane. So I really do appreciate everyone who listens. I hope that you find these things helpful. My whole goal with this podcast is to talk about things that affect our community and to have open discussions about them, to offer training advice and to get solutions to problems and just talk things out. That's the whole point of this podcast. So I really do appreciate everyone listening and for all of your feedback so far. All right, guys, thanks so much. Happy training. We look forward to seeing you soon.